welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hello, my name is Anthony Diana, a partner at Reed Smith, and I will be moderating the latest M365 in 5 series on M365 accessibility, with today's topic focused on an introduction to M365 accessibility features and the legal, regulatory, and operational issues with these accessibility features. With me today are Emily Diamond from PNC, James Hart from Lighthouse, and Angie Matney from Reed Smith. Future podcasts in this series will focus on particular accessibility features. Um, the one disclaimer before we start, the views expressed today are only attributable to the speakers and not the organizations where the speakers work. With that, let's start and begin. Let me start first on a sort of pretty broad perspective so everybody knows, like what are we talking about when we're talking about accessibility and in particular, like why is accessibility important from a business perspective? Angie, why don't you start? Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, so today we're going to talk about digital accessibility. And that is the idea that websites, applications, and digital content are going to be usable by everybody, irrespective of whether they have a disability or have specific technological needs. And this is an area that's been receiving a little bit more attention lately for some reasons that we'll talk about in a minute related to uh, legal considerations. But from a business perspective, it's important to consider that your end users, whether they're your employees or your customers, may have different technological needs, different abilities, different ways um, of accessing material. So looking to increase accessibility can really help people collaborate more effectively and can just lead to greater efficiency as well as greater uh, customer experiences as well. And Emily, what, what have you seen generally in terms of the business need for these accessibility features, particularly for M365? I think there's a lot of movement behind this. And I think, you know, Angie hit it right on the head that companies today are really looking to increase their diversity and their inclusion. And one of the ways to do that is through digital accessibility and to really you know, create that inclusive workplace environment and give the employees the tools that they need to help do their jobs. And, and Emily, is that, is that coming from, just so I know, so is it, is it coming from more of the customer base issue or is it more of a, from your perspective, is it more employee based where the, you know, recruiting and retention is so important? I think it's both. I think it's both. Um, and I think, you know, the pandemic has helped some of this from a, a customer facing perspective when you want to make sure that your customers are reachable and that you're able to communicate with them in the best ways, making sure that the right tools are, are available and accessible. Um, but then also, of course, making sure that your employees have the tools that they need to do their jobs. And, and there really is, you know, an increased effort on creating the inclusive workplace from, from what I've seen. Yeah. And I think, look, I, and I think M365, well, the reason why we're having this podcast is obviously central to that, both in terms of employees, because if you have M365, all your employees have access to it and all the different features. And then I think more and more, as Angie and Emily pointed out, it's also a customer facing tool as well, particularly with teams and 
and the audio video features and teams and teams channels and the like. So uh, an important topic. So James, just at a high level, what are from just, you know, how, how does Microsoft sort of approach accessibility generally? Yeah, thanks. And, and there's a lot of different ways that they're addressing these. And I actually, I've seen Microsoft mention it in, in, in two different ways, right? You have the, the permanent accessibility features for, for maybe people who have a, a permanent disability. So the example there would be someone who is deaf or hard of hearing, you know, the ability within a Teams call, for example, to have captions pop up so they can actually read and track the conversation that way. That would be an accessibility feature maybe to support a, a permanent disability. And um, what is interesting is that Microsoft also uh, refer to temporary disability. And that's kind of things where maybe somebody's traveling uh, or working with a, in a different country or something like that. And they have a need to translate a document, right? So their temporary disability is the fact that they're in a different country and don't understand the language. But the tools that Microsoft have there, such as automatic translation, are actually really designed to support those those temporary needs uh, of those users. So there's a, a lot of different ways that Microsoft are addressing, you know, really using these accessibility tools. Interesting. So Angie, just from a from a legal perspective, could you just give us an overview of digital accessibility? And sort of the consequences flowing if you don't have accessibility features. Sure. So digital accessibility is an area where there is, as of yet, not a lot of definitive statements in certain ways. The Department of Justice uh, in the U.S. has taken the position consistently since sometime in the 1990s that websites uh, and now other digital properties need to be accessible for people with disabilities. Having said that, the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, was enacted 32 years ago and is really not, uh, doesn't reflect the way that we use the internet today. So there are all kinds of questions as to when the ADA specifically applies and how it applies to websites. There has been a split in the circuits that we won't delve into too deeply here, but just to say that there's not a definitive statement in some sense of when accessibility is strictly required. Having said that, there are some state laws that are looking at accessibility in the context of state procurement and that sort of thing. But one thing that people may be aware of is that there's been an increase in accessibility-related litigation, somewhere around 14% from 2020 to 2021, for example. These would be suits that uh, allege that a website or app is not accessible to a person with a disability. And that could be anything from a user who's blind or who has low vision not being able to understand the purposes of various controls because there's no alt text or there's no good labeling to situations where an app requires uh, that a user use it with a specific orientation because that can impact somebody with a physical disability for whom it might not be as easy to modify the orientation of their device. You know, to, to other areas that relate to neurodivergence and other types of disabilities. Most commonly, 
accessibility cases have involved screen reader users thus far. So issues where elements of a site are not usable or navigable by someone who is blind or who has low vision. That's great. Angie, thanks for the overview. So in terms of how M365 approaches accessibility, what could you tell us about that? Well, one thing about M365 is that they describe it as a digital transformation solution that is accessible by design. So accessibility by design is something that they are trying to promote. And as we may know from discussions about privacy by design or similar concepts, this is the idea that if you build accessibility in at the beginning, you're in a much better position than if you try to remediate something on down the line. So Microsoft is really working to build accessibility into certain products to give people options to use that, which makes compliance with laws or just compliance with uh, internal policies or desires to make things more inclusive makes it easier to do that because you've got the accessibility built into the product. That's interesting. Okay. So James, let's talk a little bit about one of the big sort of legal and regulatory issues is privacy and security. And I mean, I don't know if Microsoft claims that they do privacy and security by design, but I think there's a lot of people who would raise their eyebrows about that. So James, what do you, what could you tell us about at a high level, sort of the technical privacy and security issues that may be present because of accessibility features? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think there's a, there's a lot of capabilities that Microsoft, I, th I think would say have privacy by design built in, but then we start to think about some of the features that actually use uh, maybe the cloud services and actually there are additional features that have additional considerations that maybe weren't weren't factored in at that point. So if you think about things like uh, the Teams captioning, so when you're in a Teams call and you're talking and the text is coming up on the screen, that's being identified or extracted automatically from using things like speech recognition. You know, that's not that's not capable of doing that within your own environment, within your own your own tenant or on your local machine. It has to use the cloud, the power of the cloud to actually do that. And so a lot of those services will actually send the data from your, your secure environment, your local environment to the cloud to be processed. And then you would actually receive back that, that text that ultimately gets displayed on the screen. Now, I believe that that's secure. There's mechanisms in place so that information is not going to kind of go anywhere or, or be leaked or anything like that. But it does mean there is additional processing that's happening in the cloud kind of out of your control. Um, and so there, there's going to be some implications around privacy of actually where is that data being stored, who has access to it, um, those types of things that, that have to be considered. Yeah. And I think for a lot of organizations, this this idea of Microsoft having access to their data is is a huge one. And so, Emily, I know you've had to deal with this and dealt with Microsoft on some of these issues, not necessarily accessibility, but other features and functions and maybe accessibility as well, where you have concerns about whether Microsoft may have access to the data. Where does it go? How's it being processed? What have been your experience dealing with Microsoft? Yeah, I think that's something that every company is going to have to deal with now. We have certainly seen this issue come up, especially because you know Microsoft 365 is a living, breathing product, <laughs> for lack of a better definition. It changes every day. And Microsoft's 
information about the product is online, just like you know everything else about Microsoft. And that information changes as the product changes. So companies really need to you know, do an assessment for themselves as to what their security posture is, what their comfort level is with, you know, sending information basically to Microsoft and having it sent back, understanding where that information is stored, if they can understand it, and really, you know, making a risk-based decision about this, because it is something that changes all the time. And it's going to be something that every company has a different comfort level with. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think one of the issues is that Microsoft is not always crystal clear on when they have access or where the data is being processed. So it's often not just a one-time ask, it's often several follow-ups to try to get the real answer. So Emily, one of the things that we were also talking about before this was the one of the issues that we see is that, at least for Microsoft, they may have different approaches to different features as to whether you know the organization as a whole can t- make these decisions, I guess, versus the individual who's actually using the feature. Could you ex- sort of explain that concept? Yeah, what we've seen happening, and this is particularly in the area that Microsoft calls connected experiences, is that there are some connected experiences that are governed by you know, an organization's overall master services agreement. And there are some of these connected experiences that per Microsoft's website, are really governed by an agreement between Microsoft and the individual user. So that's something that a company wants to, you know, definitely look out for and understand as to their own, you know, contractual um, agreements with Microsoft to be sure that that their employees and their contractors, their users, are, are really governed by their agreement with Microsoft, and that Microsoft is not, you know, making individual agreements with their individual employees. Yeah. And that individual agreement would be probably on a feature by feature basis, I'm assuming, right? You would, if you clicked and said, I want this feature, I want to use it, you're basically agreeing to whatever Microsoft's going to do with the data. So yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Anyway, so Angie, how about from from the legal considerations in terms of state laws and, and sort of the legal privacy implications of some of the stuff we've talked about? Sure. I think it's important to think about the fact that we're at least in, uh, well, everywhere, we are all in areas where privacy law is rapidly evolving. Here in the U.S., we have several new state privacy laws going into effect next year. These laws give consumers certain rights in data about them that is processed. So, companies will need to consider the applicability of these laws if they use features such as transcripts, as well as any exemptions that might apply. So many of these new laws give consumers certain rights to access or request deletion of the data that a company holds about them, and they may contain certain exemptions as well, though, that might apply. Many of the laws have exemptions related to employee data so that personal data of employees would not be subject to these access or deletion requests. But because there's a patchwork of laws, there are different issues uh, to consider. There's also, though, in many laws, a recognition that 
companies shouldn't retain data just for purposes of satisfying a privacy law. So for example, if a feature like closed captioning can be done without retaining data, you don't then have another obligation under that privacy law to retain it just to be able to comply with a consumer request. So those are a few issues that companies might need to consider. Oh, interesting. Emily, so now let's talk about from a, from a sort of e-discovery and data management or information governance management perspective, um, how we deal with accessibility. So generally, what are you, what are you thinking when, when you're thinking about these accessibility features? What are you thinking in terms of retention, auto-deletion, all of those issues and, and its impact on e-discovery? Yeah, I mean, at some level, right, it's the same questions that we ask for any kind of data that could be relevant to a litigation or an investigation or retained for regulatory purposes. So we ask the same questions that we always do. What data is created? Is it stored? If so, where? Um, can it be preserved? Can it be exported in a usable format? And those are the kind of questions that we need to ask for all of these accessibility features as they're rolled out. They're, you know, the very basic of, of e-discovery questions, but we, you know, kind of have to do that analysis for each and every feature that's rolled out. The other thing that we want to think about is when this data is created and you come to the part of the e-discovery process where you need to collect and process and review data, is there any evidence that shows that these can, you know, these accessibility features have any metadata associated with them? Are you able to, you know, as part of your document review, identify parts of documents that may have been generated by Microsoft or may have been, you know, analyzed by Microsoft and, and you know, sent back to your company like closed captioning that James was talking about earlier? So far, we're not seeing any of those features. I'd be interested to know if anybody else has, but that's that's part of the analysis. You know, I think that's ongoing now. Yeah, and I think, as you said, I think one of the important things, which is, I guess, frustrating, but is needed, is that you really do need to go through exactly what Emily did for each feature. Um, and you want to do it while they're launching the features, not in the middle of a litigation when you're trying to figure out how do I preserve and collect it because it's going to be incredibly difficult and the ships would sail. And I think, Emily, I think one of the things that I want to discuss, and this is sort of more generally, is what we just talked about a number of different like sort of pros and cons about these accessibility features, right? And how do, how do you balance all of them? And we could use closed captioning example. Like how, how does an organization really make an organizational decision of usually it's do we turn it on or turn it off right new feature comes out it's accessibility feature like we could use closed captioning as an example how do you do that i mean i think every decision that you know that a company is faced with like this is a really a balancing act it's you know taking the priorities that are at stake and understanding if if all of those priorities can sort of come out on top does there need to be a compromise, et cetera? One of those considerations, and, and you bring up closed captioning, which is interesting, is that closed captioning is data is not stored by Microsoft. So therefore, when it comes to you know, an e-discovery priority, in that kind of case, a company might be perfectly comfortable saying, sure, turn it on, because we don't have to worry about the retention and the collection and the preservation of, of closed captioning data. So that's that's one example. 
another consideration that companies might look at is, are some of these features that could be very beneficial to users or customers able to only be provisioned for certain users or customers, right? Does it have to be an entire enterprise rollout or can you know a risk be lessened by perhaps limiting the audience of, of who these features are rolled out to? So I don't know that there's any magic formula here, but it really is a balancing of all the risks and the priorities for, for a given company. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the balancing features is like for closed caption as a classic example is you can turn it like the individual user can turn it on or off. Like if you're in a Teams meeting, Teams A V meeting, someone can turn on closed captioning and then it's on. But it's not like the organization can say we want closed captioning and every Teams meeting has closed captioning. So there is there is some wiggle room there. And again, closed caption is one example, but I think for a lot of these accessibility features, that's how it works. So you could have training and policies around it. As you said, so if you only wanted a limited number of people to use it, you could train people like you're the person who can use it and stuff. So, um, but I think one of the keys is making sure you have all the stakeholders there to make the case, right? So I think as we did today, Angie and and James and and Emily, all of them have slightly different perspectives, but you sort of need all those perspectives, including you know someone from a technical background to like to answer some of the questions about whether the data is stored and like. So I think that's one of the, the main issues that everyone has to deal with is making sure everyone is in the room who needs to be in the room. A privacy lawyer, an accessibility lawyer, any discovery lawyer, somebody from the IT side who understands Microsoft. So all these, and the business, right? Because the business may have a need as we talked about. So all those stakers have to be there. So not an easy issue, but, and can be complicated. But I think we'll, like I said, I think, as I said in the beginning, um, we're going to have some other podcasts, follow-up series on this, where we're going to talk about specific accessibility features, and we'll sort of go through this exact analysis um, on a feature-by-feature basis. So that's coming soon. I'd like to thank everybody, Angie, James, and Emily. Thank you so much. I think this was a really good and informative podcast. Thanks. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.